Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with returning guest, author Adam Hochschild. During our conversation, Adam talks about his book, King Leopold's Ghost, which details the Belgian colonization of the Congo. In talking about the book, we discuss the individuals who publicized the genocide that resulted from the colonization, and how the murder of roughly 10 million Africans was virtually unknown to public consciousness until the past few decades. All right, Adam, well, uh, first of all, wanted to thank you again for taking more time. You were the first uh, returning guest on the exchange, so welcome back to the show. Good to be with you. So as I was mentioning before uh, we began the interview, I was given this book uh, in in April for my birthday, King Leopold's Ghost, and I've been meaning to talk to you about it uh, pretty much ever since I started uh, the book, which I just got done with a couple of months ago. want to get into the details of the book, but would love to maybe first start with how you found the subject. And I know you allude to the, to that story in the book a little bit. Um, what is that story? How did you come across the story of the Congo and King mm-hmm. Leopold and, and what made you want to spend so much time with the material? Well, as a writer, I'm always on the hunt for subjects. Uh, and I especially like to write about times and places where people felt they were engaged in some sort of um, political or moral struggle or a political struggle with moral overtones. So I've tended to write about people fighting for social justice or fighting against horrendous injustice, whether it was Stalinist tyranny in Russia, apartheid in South Africa, um, and the... uh, system of slavery uh, in the Atlantic world uh, 200 years ago, or colonialism in Africa in this case. Well, I guess I I first stumbled onto this subject when I was reading a book about something else entirely. And there was a quotation from Mark Twain, and a footnote at the bottom of the page said, Twain made this statement when he was part of the worldwide campaign against the atrocities in King Leopold's Congo, events which historians estimate took 8 to 10 million lives. And I was startled by this because I had dimly remembered that King Leopold of Belgium had controlled what later became the Belgian Congo. But 8 to 10 million deaths in one territory, I thought there must be something fishy about that statistic. Um, And I was sort of surprised I hadn't heard anything about this because uh, I'd been to Africa half a dozen times as a journalist. At the moment that I was reading this, I was actually finishing uh, another book that had to do with Africa, with South Africa, where I spent a lot of time. So the next time I had a chance to go to the library, I began looking at general histories of Africa. And every time I could find a reference to this, you know, events in the conquest of King Leopold's Congo, there was always a number like that. Some historians said 10 million, some said 12 million, some said maybe only 8 million, but it was an enormous number of people in this one territory. And nobody said very much about it in these big History of Africa books. In fact, I found one book, um, which uh, I still had from college, a very well-known book in in its era, Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, who mentions the events in King Leopold's Congo, uses a figure of 13 million deaths, and mentions it only in a footnote. So I thought, okay, what happened in this place? Why don't I know more about it when I think of myself sort of as a specialist in human rights issues with uh, some knowledge of Africa? And I started reading, and I found this extraordinary collection of characters. If you were a novelist and you made up people like this, nobody would believe you. Um, A shrewd, brilliant, uh, totally amoral, immensely greedy king, uh, eager to get a personally owned colony, which he succeeded in doing, uh, and an array of... Uh, other people 
uh, men, women, black, white, African, American, European, who did their best to blow the whistle and expose to the world what was happening in this place and why so many people were being killed through a forced labor system. Um, as I say, as a, as a novelist, if you made it up, people wouldn't believe you. They would say it was over the top, but it really happened. And uh, the center of the story is is the king himself, and, and he's a fascinating character in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, what what was the root of his desire to become uh, the colonizer of a certain part of Africa? There, it seemed like he was a political genius in the sense that he understood how to create this enormous smokescreen about him going into Africa for purely humanitarian reasons and that allowing him to generate the public goodwill to then go mm -hmm. and, as you say, sort of plunder the earth there and the people. Well, uh, Leopold II uh, took the throne of Belgium in 1865 when his father, who'd been the country's first king, died. Um, and the first problem he faced was that for a, a, a power-hungry person, uh, it was a time in history when it wasn't so much fun to be a king anymore because you had to share power with voters, with cabinet ministers, with an electorate. Uh, you no longer could have absolute power. And uh, all of, of Europe was sort of in trend, with the exception of, you know, Tsarist Russia, was in transition from absolute monarchies to greater and greater degrees of democracy, and this was happening in Belgium as it was in many other places. Um, it also soon became the time, starting around uh, 1870, five years after uh, Leopold took to power, um, when what is generally known as the scramble for Africa became. And it's amazing how quick, uh, how, how quickly that happened. In 1870, uh, roughly 80% of Africa was under the rule of indigenous leaders, mm -hmm. kings, chieftains, and so forth. Uh, by 1910, 40 years later, uh, virtually every part of the continent, with one or two exceptions, was either colonies or protectorates of European countries or else, you know, white settler territories ruled by those settlers like South Africa. So Europe gobbled up Africa very quickly. And Leopold, fairly early in his reign, saw the larger European countries around, Africa, around, around him angling for territory in Africa. He wanted to get uh, his hands on a piece of the country himself. As it happened, the Belgian government uh, was not interested in colonies. They thought having a colony thousands of miles away was an extravagance for a small country that had no navy and no merchant marine. For Leopold, that was no problem. He said, I'll get my own. And he did. And he first hired the explorer, Henry Morton Stanley, the man who found Livingston. Um, he worked for the king for five years, uh, traveled all up and down the Congo River, and basically bamboozled local chiefs into signing their territory uh, over to Leopold. And, uh, you know, these indigenous leaders had known they were not literate, they didn't know European languages. The idea of giving possession of your territory to a king on another continent thousands of miles away was inconceivable to them. Um, they made their marks on pieces of paper, but uh, virtually none of them had any idea what they were doing. And then when Europe began the process of dividing up Africa in a systematic way. One of the uh, important moments in that process was when representatives of the various European powers gathered at Berlin in 1884-85. And Leopold, in advance, had successfully lobbied first the United States and then all the major nations of Europe to recognize this vast territory in the middle of Africa, uh, pretty much the same boundaries as the Democratic Republic of Congo has today, um, as belonging not to Belgium, but to him personally. Um, and then this conference at Berlin put the seal on the deal, and he had himself the world's only privately owned colony, which was some 70 times the size of Belgium itself. 
Um, and this is what I mean when, when I say if you were a novelist and you made up something like this, people would say unbelievable, mm-hmm. over the top. Um, initially, what he thought could be the source of his wealth there, and he was interested in uh, acquiring vast amounts of wealth. Uh, <clears throat> given the declining power of monarchs all over Europe, he once said to Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, there's nothing left for us kings except money. Uh, so the nakedness of his greed was really quite extraordinary. Um, initially, uh, he had his eye on ivory, which was an enormously valuable commodity, um, much treasured uh, in Europe because ivory could be carved into jewelry, false teeth, piano keys, ornaments, statuary, all sorts of stuff. And like um, uh, illegal drugs today, it had high value and low bulk. Mm. So it was very tempting. Mm. Uh, And, you know, there were tens, hundreds of thousands of elephants uh, roaming the African continent. People killed them, got their tusks. And that was the the first thing he started to get rich on. But then um, about seven or eight years after he got his hands on the Congo uh, and installed his own personally controlled colonial regime there, uh, something else happened, which was as a result of the invention of the inflatable bicycle tire and then of the automobile, plus the suddenly increased demand for rubber uh, in industry, industrial uses, belts and machinery, coating for telephone and telegraph wires. There was a tremendous worldwide rubber boom that started in the early 1890s. And with rubber, the problem is if you plant a plantation of rubber trees, Mm. It takes them about 15 years or so to grow to maturity to the point where you can start tapping rubber out of the trees. But that meant that anybody who had access to wild rubber could really make a fortune. And nobody in the world had more wild rubber in land that they owned or controlled than Leopold II because wild rubber in the form of vines, not trees, Mm abounded in the vast Central African rainforest, which uh, covered and still covers uh, about half of the Congo. Mm. So that became the source of his fortune. I'd love to talk about, too, the implementation of the colonial regime, and and there are many layers to this process, but uh, the force publique, if I'm pronouncing that Mm -hmm. correctly, and and, and sort of the orders, the marching orders that that they were given, what did Leopold do to actually implement this forced uh, forced labor regime that that at first, as you said, mm-hmm. brought out the ivory and then and then later brought out the rubber. Well, one of the problems with gathering rubber and these were rubber vines, as I said, which twine around palm trees or other other trees uh, way up high to where they can get some sunlight, is that these are scattered throughout the rainforest. You might not have more than one or two per acre. So you had to disperse your workforce very widely over a wide territory. So the old image of, you know, um, a line of workers tilling a field with an overseer with a whip next to them couldn't apply. Mm. How do you make people disperse through the rainforest very widely, gather rubber and make sure they're going to bring it back and give it to, to you? You take their wives hostage. And that's the system he devised. Um, his private army, the, the Force Publique, uh, 19,000 officers and men, black conscript soldiers under white officers, uh, you know, maybe half of them Belgians, the rest from other European countries and from the United States as well, sprinkling of them. Uh, they would go into village after village, take the women hostage, and make the men of the, and hold them in chains. And there are photographs of these women hostages in chains. Uh, hold them hostage in order to make the men of each village go into the rainforest and gather a monthly quota of wild rubber. As the price of rubber soared, that monthly quota rose. As all the rubber vines near a village got drained dry, 
the men would have to go farther and farther, deeper and deeper into the rainforest to find rubber to bring meet their quota and bring it back. Sometimes, you know, being gone for days or weeks uh, at a time. It was a brutal system. Uh, large numbers of the women hostages were raped, and you can find Belgian officers writing about this in their diaries. Um, many of these hostages, in effect, were starved to death. Uh, the rubber laborers were, in effect, worked to death in huge numbers because when you go into a rainforest village, you hold the women hostage, you send all the able-bodied men into the forest desperately trying to gather a monthly quota of wild rubber, it means there's nobody left to hunt, fish, cultivate crops, do all the things through which a community normally feeds itself. Um, that meant there was a state of near famine over much of this territory, uh, which meant that uh, people, although they usually didn't die directly of starvation, when they're famine-ridden, they uh, succumb to diseases which otherwise they would have sur survived. Mm -hmm. In addition, um, because of this draconian forced labor regime, hundreds of thousands of Congolese uh, ran away to avoid it, but the only place they had to go was deep in the rainforest where there was little food, no shelter, and they died. Uh, plus, tens of thousands of them took place, took part in, in armed uprisings against the regime, uh, but uh, these were all uh, beaten down and suppressed because the Africans, if they had any kind of, of weaponry at all. It was usually uh, primitive muskets left over from the days of slave trading, whereas Leopold's private army had uh, repeating rifles, machine guns, uh, small cannon, steamboats, which allowed them mm -hmm. to uh, travel around quickly. And these, these uprisings were all suppressed. So from all of these causes, uh, starvation, exposure, disease associated with this, plus when you have large population movements Lots of people coming into a territory there who weren't there before. It brings in diseases that, you know, people had no immunities to. Uh, the best demographic estimates are that between uh, about 1880 and 1920, the population of the Congo was slashed roughly in half. Nobody is completely sure what that population was because, you know, there was no census but, um, again, it's a matter of estimates. M many demographers estimate that the population over that 40-year period was cut from somewhere around 20 million people to somewhere around 10 million people. You have images in your book of uh, some people that, that have been brutalized uh, during that process of hands being cut, cut off, uh, legs being cut off, feet being cut off. Uh, certain uh, uses of, of, of force uh, to, to keep people in line. And there's a, there's a part in your book where you paint the picture of, uh, I believe is an Englishman, E.D. Morrell, who uh, is keeping track of the incoming and outgoing supplies, what's coming back from the Congo, what's going to the yeah. Congo. And, and that's sort of the, the first segue into the larger sort of resistance movement against uh, King Leopold and against the regime that was that was taking place there. Who was E.D. Morrell and, and what was it about him? He's sort of an inexplicable character because he devotes almost his entire life to yeah. this cause. Yeah. What did you find? How did you find him and, and describe him as a man? Well, it was an extraordinary uh, man, an extraordinary episode. And again, I'm, I'm baffled why there haven't been a thousand people who've written books about this. Here's what happened. Um, by the late 1890s, uh, Leopold was starting to make a big fortune in rubber because there was a huge market for it in Europe and North America as industry grew. And, you know, he had uh, the world's major source of easily accessible wild rubber. Um, there was a British shipping line that had the monopoly on cargo traffic between the Congo uh, and Belgium, uh, the Elder Dempster Company uh, of Liverpool. They needed somebody to go over to the Belgian port of Antwerp across the English Channel every couple of weeks to supervise the loading and unloading of the ship, their ships coming in. 
And there was a young guy on their staff, uh, Edmund Dean Morrell, uh, who was around 25 at the time he started doing this in the late 1890s, uh, who was perfect for the job because uh, he spoke French well. So they sent him over to Antwerp every couple of weeks. And <clears throat> Morel, <coughs> uh, on the docks of Antwerp, began to notice something, which was that when his company's ships arrived from the Congo, they were filled to the hatch covers with these very valuable cargoes of rubber and ivory. And he knew how labor-intensive gathering wild rubber was. But when they turned around and sailed back to Africa, uh, they didn't carry anything in exchange. No trading goods, no merchandise. Most of the cargo was soldiers, firearms, and ammunition. Mm. And he... <clears throat> put two and two together and realized he was seeing evidence of some kind of forced labor system thousands of miles away. He didn't know what it was exactly, but this stuff was being taken by force. Contrary the to the public view of what was going on in the Congo. Right. The public view, you know, there, there thousands of other people had stood on that dock or worked on it at Antwerp and never given a moment's thought to this. Uh, and Leopold was extremely good at burnishing his public image as a philanthropist, a humanitarian, a man who'd gotten involved in Africa in order to spread Christianity and bring missionaries and help the Africans better themselves. And uh, he was a very good self-promoter, um, covered all his business doings with a kind of philanthropic veneer. Uh, today's tobacco companies could learn a few things about public relations from him. Um, but Morel noticed this uh, strange thing of the ships bringing in all this wealth and not taking back anything in exchange. Um, he saw what it meant. He went to the head of the shipping line and said, there's something terrible going on here. I don't know how it works exactly, but there's clearly forced labor, slavery of some sort involved. We shouldn't be a party to it. The head of the shipping line, who didn't want to lose his best customer, told Morel to get lost. When that didn't work, uh, he tried to promote him to another job in another country. When that didn't work, he tried to pay him some money to shut up. That didn't work. Morel quit his job. And in the space of uh, several years, really made himself into the great British investigative journalist of his time. He was just filled with horror and rage at the thought that he had somehow been a part of this process of you know, extracting wealth by slave labor from the Congo. He wanted to know how it worked. He investigated it. As soon as he started publishing newspaper articles on the subject, as any investigative reporter finds, once somebody starts exposing something, then people who have evidence come forward <laughs> because they think, here's somebody who's going to put what I know in front of the public. And there had been a small group of people who had been trying for several years to publicize what was going on there because they saw it. And these were foreign missionaries, Protestant missionaries. There were Catholic missionaries in the Congo as well, but they were really um, mobilized and manipulated totally mm -hmm. by Leopold. Mm -hmm. In order to curry favor with other countries, Leopold had allowed several hundred Protestants, uh, Americans, uh, British, and Swedish, to operate in the Congo. And these were the folks who were sort of independent from the regime who'd gone to Africa hoping to save souls and spread Christianity and so on, suddenly they found themselves in the middle of this horror show, a slave labor system. Uh, several of them had been publishing material in church magazines and missionary newsletters and so on, but nobody paid much attention to this. Suddenly they saw in Morel somebody who could get their information onto the world's front pages. Morel was a magnificent journalist. He wrote well. He knew how to uh, charm newspaper editors. And the missionaries began feeding him information, and they began feeding him photographs. And in the space of a few years, he 
he made this into forced labor in King Leopold's Congo into what was really the first great international human rights scandal mm. of the 20th century. Um, in the decade between 1900 and 1910, thousands and thousands of newspaper articles on the subject. In your view, is that really the first domino to fall that led to King Leopold eventually granting the Congo to Belgium itself? What, what were the what were the next major steps? You know, the the relationship with uh, with his good with his Irish friend uh, Robert Casement or Roger Roger, Roger Casement. Um, what were the what were if if he's sort of the spark that begins the uh, the pushback against against Leopold? What are the other important details that that uh, eventually led to King Leopold giving giving the Congo to Belgium itself? Well, there were there were a number of people who were working to expose this this slave labor system. I mentioned mentioned the missionaries who had been speaking about this, but nobody had been paying very much attention uh, until Morel really knew how to work the press came along. But there had been missionaries uh, giving speeches and uh, even illustrated lectures with slides and so forth in England, Scotland, and Sweden. Uh, and Morel was able to take their information to a much wider audience, uh, created enough of a fuss in England so that the British government asked its consul in the Congo, an Irishman named because Ireland was then part of the British mm. Empire, an Irishman named Roger Casement, to uh, make an investigation what were these charges of forced labor system. And Britain being sort of the reigning superpower of the, the time, very much like the United States today, sort of thought it was its business to look into improper activities by uh, you know, countries elsewhere in the world. Well, in... Roger Casement, the British consul in the Congo, uh, the British government had, although they, they absolutely did not realize it, somebody who was really a, a passionate human rights activist who took this assignment very seriously, spent three months traveling up and down the Congo River on a steamboat, gathering information, sworn statements, depositions from people, wrote an excoriating report um, which was then released and added fuel to the fire. And for several more years, uh, the campaign continued. Morell came to the United States. He mobilized Mark Twain to start giving speeches on the subject. Mark Twain and Booker T. Washington gave a, appeared together speaking about this. Twain went to the White House to lobby Theodore Roosevelt uh, to do something. And what the Congo reformers, as they were called, um, felt was this. They, like most Europeans and Americans of their time, didn't question the idea of colonialism. Mm -hmm. uh, and Morel, indeed, uh, felt that British colonialism was fine. It was other people's colonialism that was the problem. Uh, but they felt that the root of the problem was here was the king who had this territory all to himself, and that if he could um, be forced to give it up, turn it over to Belgium so it could become a Belgian colony, things would be much better and the abuses would stop. Uh, they were wrong about that, but this is what they, what they pushed for. And finally, in 1908, uh, having made already a profit of equal to well over a billion dollars in today's American dollars from this territory. Leopold finally gave in to the pressure and um, turned the Congo over to Belgium. Although, actually, what he did was he sold the Congo mm -hmm. to Belgium. He said to the Belgian government, all right, you can have my Congo, but you're going to have to pay me for it in installments over time. Um, and then, actually, he died the next year at the age of 73, I believe. So the payments were not all made, but it still shows what a extraordinarily um, avaricious man he was that even after having made all this money, he wouldn't give up his colony. He would only, he would only sell it. Uh, it then became the Belgian Congo. Uh, <clears throat> the... A problem was, however, that there was still so much money to be made 
by this forced labor system for gathering wild rubber that it didn't really change. In addition, the other European countries who had rubber-bearing portions of the Central African rainforest, Germany, which had the Cameroons, uh, France, which had the so-called French Congo across the river from Leopold's Congo, uh, Portugal, which had a lot of this land in northern Angola, once they had seen how profitable this forced labor system was that Leopold had, had devised, adopted exactly the same system. So even though Leopold's Congo got s singled out, mm -hmm. the death rate was equally high in all of these other territories. Um, it really began to change only in the early 1920s when... Belgian colonial officials realized, and you can actually find them saying this on paper, that if we keep on doing things under the same system, the population loss hmm. is going to be so great that we won't have any labor force left. At that point, they began, you know, putting in medical clinics, uh, making the forced labor system much easier, um, not working people so hard, and the population mm. began to rebound. Mm. There's so many interesting little details in, in, in the book as well. I mean, one of them is, is just how Leopold spent the money that he was getting uh, and the relationship he had with a when they first met, a, I think when they married a 16-year-old French yeah. prostitute, and he was 65 years old, and yeah. she bore two of his children. Yeah. Uh, Roger Caseman being a closeted homosexual, mm -hmm. leading in part to his martyrdom later in his life. Um, as as the uh, that the the secrecy of the entire regime, and I think you you reference in the book, I believe it was a Belgian civil servant who then in the I believe the seventies sort of made it his life's mission to begin to lift the veil on what had happened in in Belgium uh, fifty or sixty years earlier. Uh, very little had been known at that point. Uh, very little had been known when your book was published. It sounds like about what what had gone on. Uh, talk to me about the. I, I'm blanking on his name, but the mm -hmm. civil servant who wrote the yeah. book that you was a was a sort of a resource for you. Yeah. What, what was that story? Okay, um, let's back up just a little bit to say that everything I've told you about is known and has long been known by professional historians mm -hmm. of Africa. You know, it's just like if you're a historian of Europe. You know about the Holocaust. You, you can't study Europe in the 20th century without knowing that. And anybody who's a, an Africa scholar knows this stuff. Yeah. But it wasn't part of well-known public history. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think a major reason for that, either in, in Belgium or anywhere else, and a major reason for that was that the, the years when this scandal of forced labor and the atrocities in King Leopold's Congo filled the world's front pages um, was, you know, from like uh, 1900 or 1902 to maybe 1910, 1912. Then it began to drop out of public consciousness a little bit. And then in 1914, when the First World War began, suddenly Belgium was the victim mm. because poor, innocent little Belgium was invaded by big bad Germany, and indeed the Germans were very nasty invaders and treated Belgium very badly. And uh, suddenly everybody in other countries felt sorry for Belgium. Uh, all of British and French war propaganda was based on coming to the aid of poor, neutral, little, violated Belgium. And the Brits were terribly eager to get the United States into the war on their side, so photographs and accusations, some of them real, some of them pretty wild and exaggerated about German atrocities in occupied Belgium were widely circulated. And at that point, nobody wanted to remember the things that the Belgians were accused of only a, you know, a few years before. And then after the war, you know, there had been millions of deaths in Europe, which you know, preoccupied people in Europe and the United States. Uh, Europe was trying to put itself together after the war. The seeds of the next war were were brewing. And this piece of history in the Congo got forgotten. Mm. You know, not by the professionals whose mm. business it was to study that, but it, you know, it pretty much got left out of the history books. 
And as in all of the European countries, um, the history of the colonial era was written in a way that, you know, emphasized the good side of, mm. of colonialism. And, you know, it's been whitewashed. Uh, American colonialism has been whitewashed out of our own history books, too. You find very few Americans who know anything about the extremely brutal colonial war that the U.S. waged in the Philippines at exactly the same time all this stuff was going on in the Congo. Anyway, um, flash forward to 1975. Uh, there is uh, a Belgian diplomat, Jules Marchal, who uh, is Belgian ambassador to a group of three small countries in West Africa, Ghana, uh, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. And one day, there, he saw an article in a Liberian newspaper which mentioned 10 million people killed in King Leopold's Congo. Um, and he was startled by this, and he wrote uh, a message to the foreign ministry in Brussels uh, <coughs> saying, can somebody send me some information on this so I can write a proper letter to the editor and reply to this slander on our country? And he said to me 20 years later, I got no reply. And that's when my curiosity began. And then he discovered, as anybody does who begins reading the scholarly literature on the period, that yes, there had been an enormous number of deaths. He also discovered what anybody reading the scholarly literature on the period would find, that some crucial records uh, having to do with all this were in the archives of the Belgian foreign ministry, his employer, namely a uh, testimony that was taken before an investigative commission that went to the Congo in 1904-05. So the next time he was back in Brussels, he went to the foreign ministry archives uh, and said, uh, I'd like to see the, the, the transcripts of the testimony of the 1904-05 investigative commission. And they said, you can't see them. It's closed. And he said, but it's 70 years later, and I'm an ambassador. And he was so enraged that they wouldn't show him this stuff that he devoted uh, the next 20 years of his life, uh, part of which he was still in the Belgian Foreign Service, uh, an ambassador elsewhere, um, and then in his, his retirement, to writing what I think is really the most comprehensive history of this period because he'd been a civil servant all his life, and actually before going into the Belgian diplomatic service, he'd actually been in the colonial service when it was still the Belgian Congo. He knew his way around government bureaucracy. He knew that when records were destroyed, and Leopold quite spectacularly in a, uh, a bonfire in the, the furnace in the Royal Palace in Brussels, uh, tried to destroy all of the records from his Congo administration. But Marshall knew that uh, whenever a uh, <clears throat> government official writes a letter or some other document, there are always carbon copies made. And he began to figure out the system for where the carbon copies were used to be. Used to be. And he wrote a four-volume history of King Leopold's Congo, um, which was an enormous resource for me when I was writing my book. Uh, <clears throat> Marshall, like a little more than half the people in, in Belgium, uh, his native language is Dutch, uh, <clears throat> which I don't speak at all, but happily for me, just at the moment that I discovered him, he had finished translating his four volumes into French, which I can read. Huh. Um, I mean, the luck and the timing for me, it was unbelievable. Uh, and uh, we subsequently became friends. I visited him a number of times. He read my manuscript. He made corrections and suggestions and so forth. Um, and uh, sadly, he died some years later, uh, but he was hugely helpful to me. And his, his uh, four-volume history of this period is a very important resource for anybody writing about it. I'm wondering. I, I believe it was. It's either in the book or somewhere I read about your uh, your initial manuscript when you were pitching it to, to publishers. That I think you gave the book to ten people, 
10 different publishers, nine of which said, no way, we're not going to publish this. And, yeah. and one, one ended up publishing it. And you also allude in the book to um, some of the changes. I think it might be the epilogue at the end of the book where you, you talk about how the public, uh, or the public persona of King Leopold or just the, the, the reputation of him may have changed in, in some, to some degree based on the sort of revelations that have come out about him. Well, what's your view on, on that now? How do Belgian yeah. people feel about that period of time? A little differently, I think. Um, the, um, I mean, my problem with publishers was, you know, when, you, when you're trying to get a book published, you do what's called a book proposal, where mm -hmm. you outline what you uh, hope to accomplish in the book, and you send it to publishers. And I had published three other books at this point. Uh, thought I would have no trouble finding a publisher for this one, but the proposal went to uh, ten different publishers, and nine of them turned it down. Uh, three of whom were actually people I knew personally, mm. but everybody felt no market for a book about Africa. You know, there isn't even an African history shelf in a lot of bookstores. Mm. And somebody said, why don't you try a magazine article on this first? So on. But the 10th publisher got it. Mm. Uh, Houghton Mifflin, today Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and they have published, you know, three subsequent books of mine. Mm. Uh, so I'm very grateful to them. Um, but I, I think what happened in Belgium, which has been interesting to watch, um, as I say, I didn't really discover anything new mm. about this. This stuff has been known, you know, by African history specialists, you know, for decades and decades and decades. Uh, but, you know, there's the history that's known and there's the history that people want to look at. And people in Belgium didn't want to look at this. And Marshall, who published this four-volume history of King Leopold's Congo, first in his native Dutch, then in French, the two principal languages in Belgium, hmm. he had, at the point that I met him, his books had never been reviewed in a single Belgian newspaper, magazine, or academic journal. Admittedly, they were not easy reading, um, but still, it was remarkable to mm. me. But there's a peculiar way that isn't really fair in which being from the world's current superpower, the United States, lets your voice carry a little farther. And I think the fact that King Leopold's Ghost was written by an American meant that people paid attention to it in the way that... Um, they wouldn't have if exactly the same book had been written by an Albanian or a Hungarian mm. or a Belgian. Mm. So my book did get a lot of attention when it came out. It, it became the number one bestseller in both languages in Belgium. And I always tried, when I went there on my book tour, to draw attention to Marshall and say, you've got somebody here who knows much more about all this than I do. And there are a couple of other historians in Belgium, one of whom had, two of whom had been very helpful to me in the course of mm -hmm. writing the book that I was able to refer people to. Um, and then TV crews began coming in interviewing Marshall. Uh, but something else happened at the same time, uh, actually the, a year after my book came out there, there was a Belgian author who wrote a uh, uh, an investigative book about Belgium's role in the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the first democratically chosen uh, Congolese prime minister who uh, uh, took office in uh, 1960 when the Congo became independent, much too radical for uh, Europeans and Americans to stomach, and Belgium and the United States saw to it that he was deposed and assassinated. Um, and a, a Belgian author, Ludo de Witt, uh, published a book in uh, 1999, the year after mine appeared, about Belgian complicity in the assassination of Lumumba, and that got a lot of attention. So I think the, the two books together um, made um, people in Belgium sit up and, and look at this in a way that they hadn't before. And you can kind of trace... The effects of this in the <laughs> in in a museum there. There's an enormous museum 
the Royal Museum of Central Africa, which is, I think, the largest museum in the world specifically devoted to Africa. And ironically, it's not in Africa. It's on the outskirts of Brussels. It was founded by King Leopold. And up until the late 1990s, and I visited it when I was working on the book uh, in 1995, there was nothing in this place, zero, not nothing that indicated anything about the fact that while all this beautiful African art and artifacts and canoes and statuary and so on was being brought back to Africa, millions of people were being worked to death as rubber slaves. Um, when my book appeared, uh, the director of the museum made a terrible mistake of appearing at a press conference at a human rights film festival in Brussels, and somebody asked him, are you contemplating any changes in the museum? And he said, uh, yes, we are, but they're going to be done on a scientific basis and not as a result of that disreputable book by an American. Uh, and then over the next couple of years, the museum went through four different directors because it was caught between uh, what was then quite strong old colonial lobby in Belgium of people who'd worked in the colonial service when it was the Belgian Congo and who wanted to preserve a rosy vision of the old days, and younger Belgians who, you know, genuinely cared about human rights issues and wanted their uh, country's history to be represented uh, fairly. The museum went through four different directors, finally appointed one guy who seemed to be able to appease both sides, and they mounted a temporary exhibit in uh, 2005, which purported to tell the truth about colonialism at last. Uh, it didn't. I went there. I saw it. I did a piece about it in the New York Review of Books, pointed out some mistakes they'd made, some outright misrepresentations, which they finally copped to. Um, and now the museum is closed for renovations. Uh, it had improved somewhat by 2010 when I visited again. Now it's closed for renovations, and nobody knows what's going to emerge uh, since then. There have also been some interesting incidents of statues of Leopold II, which are all over Belgium, being defaced or having their hands cut off or being drenched in red paint to uh, uh, symbolize blood and so yeah. on. Last question I want to ask you, and, and I'm remembering the, the opening of, of your book where you learn, you talk about learning about the, uh, this period of, of colonial history, Belgian history, uh, the history of the Congo, and how it was essentially nearly the scale, if, or, or maybe just slightly below the scale, of the general Holocaust in the, in the 20th mm -hmm. century, which everyone knows about. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if since that time there are other parts of history that you stumbled across that are equally uh, not known about by the general public that are just as disturbing or maybe even not in history, things that are going on now that, that just are not uh, generally well-known by the public that you think should be? Gosh. Um, you know, all of history is such a record of slavery, bloodshed, unnecessary wars, man-made famines, uh, anywhere you look. Uh, there are all kinds of very, very unpleasant things. Uh, I, I think it's, it, it should be the responsibility of any country um, to come to terms with the unsavory parts of its past. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, look at what's happened here in the United States. Uh, when I went to, to school, to high school in the 1950s, we didn't learn much about American slavery. We learned that slavery was there and that it was a cause of the American Civil War, but never read a slave narrative, never really read detailed um, accounts of what the daily experience of a slave was like. When my kids went to high school in the 1980s and 90s, it was quite different. Mm. Why? Because I think the civil rights movement had empowered enough black Americans so that they began demanding that this history be taught and be taught properly. And my kids read slave narratives and so on in a way that I never did. Mm. Um, 
so the lesson for me is that you need a constituency of people who are going to demand that the truth about something be told. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that there are all sorts of um, you know, unpleasant truths where there's no constituency in the country involved who's demanding that it be mm-hmm. told. Um, we we now do, I think, finally cop to the fact in the United States that the, the, the murder and displacement of vast numbers of Native Americans was a pretty horrible part of our history. But it's taken a while for that to be acknowledged. I think it's still not acknowledged enough because, you know, Native Americans or American Indians are fairly small in number today uh, and not very politically powerful. There's all sorts of colonial and neo-colonial stuff in our past uh, that gets little acknowledgement. I mentioned the U.S. war in the the Philippines, hundreds of thousands of Filipinos killed uh, in 1899 to 1902 especially, but fighting continued for a while after that. You barely ever read about it in American history books. Very few, if any, exhibits in historical museums about it because there isn't a constituency of people demanding that the truth be be, be told. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Holocaust is a little different because there are a lot of survivors in many countries who have, they and their descent, descendants have mobilized and demanded that that truth be told, and it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm glad that it is. But there are all sorts of other unsavory things that we ought to be looking at as well. Well, Adam, thank you again so much for coming back on the show. It was a a real pleasure. Good. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.